This is uh, <coughs> case 46 from the Hekigan Roku. Jin King's Sound of the Raindrops. The introduction. With a single stroke, he completes it and passes beyond ordinary and holy. His slightest word can break things up, untying what is bound and releasing what is stuck. As if walking on a thin ice, running over a sword blade. He sits within the heaps of sound and form. He walks on top of sound and form. For the moment, I leave aside wondrous functioning in all directions. How is it when he leaves this very instant? To test, I'm citing this old case. Look, the case. Jin King asked the monk, what is the sound outside the gate? The monk said, the sound of the raindrops. Jin King said, sentient beings are inverted. They lose themselves and follow after things. The monk said, what about you, teacher? Jin King said, I almost don't lose myself. The monk said, what is the meaning of I almost don't lose myself? Jin King said, though it, is it should still be easy to express oneself, to say the whole thing has to be difficult. The verse. An empty hall, the sound of raindrops, never ever interrupted. Everyone is here. If you say he's ever let the streams enter, as before, you still do not understand. Understanding or not understanding, on South Mountain or North Mountain, more and more downpour. Let me first express my appreciation for your presence here in such a beautiful summer day where there are many other things to do and many others are doing those other things. Yet here we are, engaging in practice, summer, winter, and everything in between. Good days, bad days, happy moments, sad moments, the whole package. The whole package, and none of it has the power to destabilize your practice. Yet all of it has power to destabilize your practice. What's the difference? Well, koans are an integrated and unique, very unique part of the Zen tradition. And when students of the Dharma encounter and work with them, they, we, express a wide gamut of emotional, psychological, and physical experiences. You know, some students feel the, an aversion to Quran study or find it frustrating and discouraging, while others may feel intrigued by the process and are eager to stay engaged with it. But if we put aside our personal experience, varied personal experiences of Quran study, what matters is that we understand the transformative potential Quans offer us for awakening. Or the power it has. And that we understand the urgency to do so, to awaken. In other words, to understand that what we feel about koan or other aspects of practice is secondary to what it offers and secondary to the urgency that we need to awaken, off awaken. And with all the koans, 
there is a common thread. They're different. And it's good to practice. On one, on one level, you can stay with the same koan and penetrate and deepen and awaken. But we need. It's helpful. It's skillful. To be exposed to the same thing in different ways. In fact, Aikido practice is, is very similar to that. It teaches one aspect, one thing. Merge, blend, harmonize, whatever we call it. Yet it teaches this in many ways. And it's interesting because the different ways we train trigger different things in us. And it's a great thing because it gives us an opportunity to examine it, to work with it, to use it for the process of spiritual maturation. Aikido, same with Zen. Many stories, many anecdotes, many dialogues. Lots of sutras, commentaries. But all of them, all of it, is there for us to awaken to this. Do we see that? Or do we get caught up in our personal feelings towards practice, <clears throat> or towards waking up in the morning, or towards being here when it's a beautiful day outside and we may rather do something? The teacher in this case is Jinking Daofu, 10th century Chinese Zen master, a disciple of Zhefeng Seppo. Based on recorded stories of his teachings, one of his favorite ways to test the depth of his disciples or their understanding was to draw their attention to a sound and ask, what is this sound? What is this? And this koan, Jinking happened to have a dialogue with one of his disciples while it was raining. So he used what was available. He was referring to the rain, pointing at it, asking, what is that sound outside the gate? And the footnote to the question says, he casually lets down a hook. He does not suffer from deafness. He hears very well. Right? It's not that he doesn't understand what's going on. And then it says, what is he asking? Of course, the sound of the rain. What is he, why is he asking? He casually lets down the hook to see if we climb onto it, if we bite. How do we deal with that? So he wasn't deaf or detached from reality. He knew exactly what was going on. Why would he ask such a question? And his disciple naturally says, it's the sound of the raindrops. And the footnote to that says, he's undeniably true. He is truthful in his response. Meaning he sure heard the sound of the rain. But, did he notice the gap between the ear and the sound? Was he examining that? Was he aware of how quickly his mind produced a firm conclusion? Was he aware of what was going on internally? Was he aware of the one who perceived this as the sound of the rain? What is sound? How do we know what it is that we hear? How do we know what it is that we see? How can we, how can we be so convinced that we know what or who we see Right? And, when, and what happens when we are so convinced that we know? In other words, what, is the, what are the dangers 
that follow immediately that conclusion, that firm conclusion. I know what I'm looking at. And I have firm, solid conclusions about that, thoughts about that, opinions about that, or about him or her, or a group of people. How do we meet our minds? So Jinking heard that and responded by saying, sentient beings are inverted. They lose themselves and follow after things. How does this happen? How do we get lost in what seems to make perfect sense? at that moment. Isn't it the opposite? Are, no, are we not clear at that moment of knowing what it is that we are facing or what we encounter? Because that's exactly what it seems to be saying to us. It's almost like the sound and the definition or the sight and the definition come up at the same time. So I want to go back to Evelyn Underhill, which some of you may remember. I quote, it's been a while since I looked at it or brought it up. 19th century British writer, thinker, philosopher, highly recommended to look at. From her book, Mysticism, she says, and she talks about the process of perceiving, hearing, seeing, touching, smelling, encountering. She says, let us begin at the beginning and remind ourselves of few of the trite and primary facts which all practical persons agree to ignore. Agree to ignore. And we can sit on that for a while, that line. That beginning for human thought is, of course, the I, the ego, the self-conscious subject which is writing this book or the other self-conscious subject which is, which is reading it or hearing and which declares in the teeth of all arguments, I am. Here is a point as to which we all feel quite sure. No metaphysician has yet shaken the ordinary individual's belief in his own existence. The uncertainties only begin for most of us when we ask, what else is there? Or when we ask, what is it? As Jinkin does. To this, she says, to this I, this conscious self, imprisoned in the body like an oyster in the shell, as Plato said, come, as we know, a constant stream of messages and experiences. Chief amongst these are the stimulation of the tactile nerves, whose result we call touch, the vibrations taken up by the optic nerve, which we call light, sight, and those taken up by the ear and perceived as sound. What do these experiences mean? The first answer of the unsophisticated self is that they indicate the nature of the external world. It is to the evidence of her senses that she turns when she is asked what the world is like. Or what is that sound? Who is that person in front of you? What are you looking at? What are you feeling? So right now, when we ask this question, of course, there is a sound of someone talking. We think you know who that is. There is a sensation of the one who is listening. We think we know who that is. There is this room, the cushions, everything is very clearly defined. That's the given. And that's what we need to question. That, that is what koans are there to, to mess with, 
And she goes on to say, from the messages received through those senses, which pour on her whether she will or not, battering upon her gateways at every instant and from every side, whether she has, she's aware of it or not, she constructs that sense world, quote unquote, which is the real and solid world of normal people, end of quote. As the impressions come in, or rather those interpretations of the original impressions. The interpretations of the original impressions. There's a hint. Which her nervous system supplies. She pounces on them, much like players in the spelling games pounce on the separate letters dealt out to them. She sorts, accepts, rejects, combines, and then produces from them a concept which she says is the external world. With amazing simplicity, she attributes her own sensations to the unknown universe. The stars, she says, are bright. The grass is, is green. And so on and so forth. With amazing simplicity, she attributes her own sensations to the unknown universe. That's what I meant by when I said a couple weeks ago, <clears throat> one of the teachers, that the more we live, the more we die. The older we are, <clears throat> in a way, the more dead we are, without examining what we think we know. Been done that, that. I've seen it many times before. I know what that is. Do we? No, the way we perceive reality determines the way we move through life. Half dead or fully alive or fully dead. It determines the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act. And Maybe more importantly, whether or not because harm and suffering all strive for the welfare of all creation. So it's crucial that we examine our automatic and conditioned responses to what we see, what we hear, what we feel. Or as Evelyn Underhill puts it, the interpretations of the original impressions which our nervous system supplies. One neuroscientist said, most of our life is spent interacting with our own nervous system. Right? We're trapped within the perceiving instrument. And it explains why it makes sense to rely on our conditioned ways of seeing things as they appear through the senses. And why it doesn't make sense to question it? Why would we go against ourselves? Why would we doubt that which gives us signposts to where to go or how to behave? But if we want to evolve as human beings, we have to doubt what we have come to trust. And we have to raise illogical questions. Or questions that we think we have answers for. Now, Zen practice revolves around messing with our conditioned way of being. And this Specific, this particular quant is asking us to observe our automatic internal responses and to examine how they control our thinking, how they control or dictate what we say and what we do. Maybe especially now, more than ever, we're living in a time of harsh, Terminalist political climate. We're all exposed to the divisive, inflammatory, hateful, 
and discriminatory rhetoric used by the current White House occupant, which is backed by many elected officials who feel that as long as their agendas are being served, they can look the other way and allow it. It's okay. Let him speak this way. He gives us Supreme Court justices. He gives us what we need. It's okay. It's going to go away. It's not causing much harm, or it's causing harm that is somewhat manageable. And, and, and the thing is, regardless of, of our political affiliation, I think it's important for us to recognize that to some degree, everyone is affected by it. Those who support it and those who oppose it. All of us are exposed to it. And it does something to all of us. It can ignite the general sense of irritability, which it does. Which many people are, since 2016, are constantly irritated. Can trigger some anger, raise some fear and anxiety, and initiate thoughts that for some people may snowball too. Intense hatred and justify mass killings. As we saw last weekend, 31 people dead. Why? Why not? For someone, it actually made sense. We would love to, I think many politicians would love to label these people as mentally unstable, crazy. But the reality is that most people who commit such crimes are actually very clear. They're like the rest of us. It's just that something in them was hijacked. So it made sense to act this way. They lost themselves and follow after things. Well, we all do lose ourselves and follow after things. I grew up in a country that is still plagued by hatred. It still, it still suffers greatly and pays with human blood for that hatred. Never goes anywhere. And those people who, jihadists or people who blow themselves up, terrorists, they're not mentally ill as the label goes. They know very clearly what they're doing. They're aware of it. And they want to do it. Because they see others, group of people, it doesn't matter what they are, white, black, green, blue, it doesn't really matter. But in their minds, there is us and them. us and them, and they may need to be eliminated because they pose a threat to us, to me. It really doesn't matter. You know, strong identification with ideology, ethnicity, nation, opinion, actually creates justification to hate and essentially dehumanize others. And from that point, once we dehumanize others, from that point, the road to killing them is actually not very long. Especially when high-capacity weapons are so prevalent. You got to wonder, you know, if, if people like this, which, you know, like these two last weekend, strongly identified with idea. What if they did not have such weapons available for them? 
Maybe they'll go and yell at somebody or beat somebody up. Cause some harm. But not to that extent. Or maybe they will find a way to calm down. Maybe time or lack of availability of weapons. Maybe that's all they needed. Once we separate, once we create definitions and separate, then we create separations. And from creating separations, we create further separations and then alienate further and further. Right? And, and this is... It's not that we don't have the ability to separate. Obviously, our active discriminating consciousness is, is a great capacity. All of us have it. All of us possess it. We have to have it. And it serves an important function in our daily lives. It helps us make decisions, move through everyday challenges in, in a way that makes sense, in a sensible way, maybe helpful way. So there's nothing wrong with having an active discriminating consciousness. Of course, the issues begin when we use this discriminating consciousness to form an identity. When we use it, not just to know how to get from here to there and to cook a meal or to do whatever is needed. When we use it to define me in relation to you. When the capacity to differentiate blinds us to the reality of unity. The fact that we can see differentiation does not mean that unity is non-existent in each of the particularities. But the eye does not see it. To the eye, you're different. And to the mind, you may be a threat. King said to the monks, sentient beings are inverted. They lose themselves and follow after things. We follow the differentiating consciousness. We follow what the eyes see, what the ears hear, or what the mind thinks. And we allow it without practice, without stability, without observation, we allow it to hijack the body. We're all upside down, one way or another. We have been upside down for such a long time. It actually seems like right side up. And it makes sense. It makes sense to, to form a self from what the eye sees or what the ear hears. In other words, it makes sense to follow after things. <clears throat> there is a term in psychology called, as this phenomena, per perceptual adaptation. And it, it says there's a unique function of the brain that accounts for the differences viewed in the world as it relates to the senses. This phenomena occurs in all senses, including vision, hearing, touch, and smell. An example is when images sensed through the eyes are relayed through the visual cortex of the brain, and if vision is altered slightly, the brain accounts for the differences and will allow one to perceive the world as quote-unquote normal. This is a compensation mechanism the brain uses for the world to appear normal in our minds when our world has obviously been altered from its previous state, original state. 
And I think even with mass shootings, we may need to admit that we got used to it. It's horrific for a couple of days. And then we go back to what we're doing. Because it happens. It was a period that suicide bombings in Israel occurred on on somewhat regular basis. And you just adapt. You just walk with it. I grew up in a place that when I was a child in kindergarten, they taught us to look for uh, unattended objects, whether it's a bag or something, or whatever it is. And if we find something, we're supposed to put rocks around it and go call somebody. And it's okay, well, this is the reality we live in. It's not a problem, it's just something that we have to deal with. And, and the point of that is this is what happens na- naturally, and there is a reason for that, because th- that phenomena is designed to keep us going. Otherwise, we freak out and we are paralyzed and we can't move. And obviously, that's not what we want. That's not going to be helpful. But we have to examine and ask, is this really what... Is this really normal? That's it. There is no other way. How do we hear when we read the news or listen, how do we hear 31 people died in one weekend? How do we hear that when it keeps happening? So being upside down, we lose ourselves and follow after things. Maybe we don't go and kill other people, but we lose ourselves and follow after things in our own little ways. And Zen training is aimed at turning us right side up, to flip it, what's called turning word, a turning koan too. My koans actually have the power to do that. Maybe not right away. Maybe we need to soften something in us and be exposed to koan after koan after koan after koan and another chant and another chant and another chant and another seat, another seat. It's no problem. It takes a while to soften the rigidity of our being. But it has the power to flip us right side up so we see things as they are. Or we see what is not the way I think it is. So in hearing this koan, the commentary says, you too should understand right here. When the ancients imparted their teaching with one device, one object, they wanted to guide people. They wanted to Wake us up today. One day, Jinking asked the monk, another story, what is the sound outside the gate? The monk said, the sound of a quail. And Jinking said to him, if you wish to avoid uninterrupted hell, do not slander the will of the true Dharma of the Tathagata. Was he slandering the will of the Dharma? by saying this is the sound of a quail. Another time, Jinking asked another monk, what is the sound outside the gate? And the monk said, the sound of a snake eating a frog. Probably wonder, how does he know? Jinking said, I knew the sentient being suffer. Here is another suffering, suffering sentient being. Who is that? The frog? 
monk, us, And it says, if patriarch monks can penetrate here, well, if we can penetrate here, nothing can block their independence within the hips of sound and form. If you cannot penetrate, then you are constrained by sound and form. In other words, if you do not penetrate and see equality or unity in all appearances, And, and all appearances, then we are trapped by what we see. Actually, what we see has a whole different meaning. Because it may not be what I want to see. Or what I want to hear. You may not be who I want to see. And I have strong opinions about sound and form by themselves, do not have the power to constrain or hinder us. And the way we perceive our interpretations of what we see and hear can potentially create barriers that although are essentially false, nevertheless can cause great suffering and harm. And, and the key is to not be blind to the simple truth that the one reality manifests in many ways. The one reality. If I kill you, I kill me. If I embrace you, I embrace me. Whoever you are, whatever I think about you, all negligible to the fundamental truth that you and I are one. Each drop of water, the one ocean of humanity, So Jinking says, sentient beings are inverted, they lose themselves and follow after things. And the monk asks, well, what about you? It's a good question. Do you lose yourself or are you beyond losing yourself and following after things? And Jinking said, I almost don't lose myself. And the commentary says, you must realize that the ancient was using his, pro and that's Jinking, was using his probing pole and reed shade to see into the depth and examine this monk. The monk too pressed back, well, immediately saying, what about you, teacher? What happened then was that Jinking went into the mud and water to say to him, I almost don't lose myself. The reason for saying this was that the monk was losing himself, pursuing things. Why did Jinking lose himself too? You must realize that Jinking had a place to get out himself within the phrase he used to test the monk. That was Upaya in action. Skillfully. He went down to the mud, not afraid to get dirty, within that mess with an understanding the way out is the understanding that all of it has one origin with no beginning and no end what does that do to hatred the realization that we are one. What happens to hatred? How 
How do we deal with anger? When, with our own anger when we realize or we act from a place of understanding that we are one. The monk said, what is the meaning of I almost don't lose myself? And Jinking answered, though it, is, it still should be easy to express oneself, to say the whole thing has to be difficult. To encounter the Absolute is not yet enlightenment. We hear it again and again and we chant it again and again. To encounter the Absolute, yes. Actually, it's easy. You may not think so, but that's the easy part in practice. But that's not functioning within it. That by itself can create another division, another barrier, another wall. Another group of people who has, have not realized anything and are, by my definition, deluded. On the other side of that wall or river. The footnote says about this line, though it should still be easy to express oneself, to say the whole thing has to be difficult, it says provisions to nourish a son. That's, this is our nourishment. All, he says, although it's like this, where have Teishan and Linchi, Rinzai, gone? He's from that lineage, Jinking. If he doesn't call it the sound of the, the raindrops, what sound should he call it? It simply cannot be explained. If you call it the sound of the raindrops, you may be trapped by that. If you don't, you negate the fact that it is the sound of the raindrops. So what is it? Maybe it's enough to ask. Maybe we don't have to answer. How about that? Maybe we don't have to answer. If I ask, what is this? And we examine that beyond what arises instantly in the mind. And we go directly to this. What happens? The verse says, an empty hole, the sound of raindrops. Never ever interrupted, everyone is here. Hard to respond, even for an adept. If you say, never let the streams enter, as before, you still do not understand. If we think that he resides, him, Jinking, at a place where nothing happens, at a place of deep state of realization, at a place of not getting, not mingling, not getting hurt, getting dirty, suffering, experiencing a wide gamut of emotions, you still don't understand. You're still stuck. Then he says, understanding or not understanding? And the footnote says, cut off the two ends. The two are not separate. It's not on these two sides. Understanding or not understanding, on South Mountain or North Mountain, more and more 
downpour. And the footnote says, above our heads and under our feet. If you call it the sound of the raindrops, you're blind. If you do not call it the sound of raindrops, what sound would you call it? Your feet must be treading the ground of reality before you can get here. You have to tread the ground of reality before this, all of it, becomes everyday food and drink. before we stop making stuff from everyday appearances. Before we stop getting in our own way. Before we allow, we stop allowing stupidity to rule the day. <clears throat> the introduction says, he sits within the heaps of sound and form, he walks on top of sound and form. And Hakuin commented on this, saying, there is nothing in the world outside of sound and form. Even hills and heavens come from these two. Of course. How can one have stipulations or clauses or parentheses? All of it, our delusion and our enlightenment, our stupidity and our wisdom, all of it is just that. Treading the ground of reality, right? Since there is nothing in the world outside of sound and form, even hells and heavens, heavens come from these two. If you can master this sphere, you gain great freedom, serene and peaceful indeed. Zen practitioners should be able to sleep in the midst of sound and form. Not to be impressed by our own interpretations of things. Even to not be impressed by our own karma, by how the karma manifests in us right now. So we don't create more of the same for later. Do not be impressed. Do not take ourselves so seriously. You know, the mess is messy and loud and harsh at times. But you know, if we sit and encountered that in our zazen and said the hell with zazen because it's not working for me I don't want that we are rejecting a lot more than just one period of sitting we are creating a definition of something that we don't like well guess what you go out the street you find exactly that in a different form What Zazen offers us it actually is, is quite the opposite. It offers us a place or a practice of complete and total acceptance. Do not judge by any standards. Total acceptance. Embracing all of it. Whether you like it or not. How else can we bear witness? Right? We don't bear witness to what we like, only what we like. We bear witness and we teach ourselves to bear witness in our zazen. So we can bear witness to all the challenges, difficulties, and pain and suffering without judging, without getting caught up in differentiation.
last few lines from Seng San Trust in Mind, says, The way transcends time and space, one thought for 10,000 years. Being nowhere, yet everywhere, all places are right before your eyes. The smallest is the same as the largest, the realm free of delusions. The largest is the same as the smallest, no boundaries or marks can be found, can be seen. Existence is precisely non-existence. Non-existence is precisely existence. If you cannot realize this, then you should change your ways. One is everything, everything is one. If you can realize this, why worry about not reaching perfection? Trust in the non-duality of mind. Non-duality results from trust in mind. Beyond words and speech, it is neither past, present, no future. Can you see? Can you hear the sound of unity? Can you see the colorless in every color? The flavorless in every flavor? Can we see what the eye cannot see? Or can we see that by which the eye can see? Or that by which the ear can hear? Lots to practice. Every sound, every sight, every form. Bring all of it your practice.